What's up? Hi, Leslie. So working. Hi, buddy. <laughs> How are you? Hi, everybody. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I like, I think I said this earlier. I'll say it again. I like your stones. <laughs> it's <'cause laughs> like a good your... line. So why not repeat it? <laughs> <laughs> I like your jellyfish shirt. First, let me just say thanks to Jillian and thanks to Susan and Alan Cogswell, whose name I just saw in the slideshow. Sounds like they're tonight's sponsors. Thank you guys so much. Thanks to the National Writers Series for hosting us. So cool. So cool to see the history of all these amazing speakers that you've hosted over the years. We're honored to be a part of it. I'm sorry we're not in the opera house together so we could cheers a blast together, Leslie, but it's great to see everybody virtually. Yeah, I wish we could be in person too, but this is this is an awesome opportunity. It's always fun to see you, even if it has to be on the grid. Um, so Jillian gave an awesome introduction already to your work, so I, I don't need to go on with the accolades. Um, it's apparent and easily Googleable. Um, but I, I, I did think that, you know, maybe I might, explain why you and I are talking. Um, okay, great. I, I have known Tony um, since 1999. Uh, we met, we, we were two years old when we met. <laughs> That's right. We, we look amazing. Um, <laughs> we, we both were, had long blonde hair. <laughs> right. You remember. Um, we were office mates um, at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, this is when both he and I were not too many years out of our MFA writing program, still, you know, trying to figure out what the heck we were doing. Um, and I remember, I probably told you this story before, Tony. Um, I remember I was in the office one day and you came in and you put your stuff on your desk and you said, writing is so fun. And I looked at you, I was like, I'm going to drop kick you because I had had not a very good writing day. And I thought, why did I not go to business school? What have I done to myself? Um, but that that has always stuck with me. Um, that 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 moment of you saying how fun writing is, because you know when I when I started reading your work, I the, the the fun was apparent, and and more than that, it was more than fun. It was it was a real joy in in language and and in storytelling, um, and uh, you know it's just that sense of exuberance. Um, is really apparent in your work. And, and that's not to dismiss the hours and hours of labor and eye strain and bouts <laughs> of self-doubt that perhaps even you, you know, might, might suffer from. But, you know, reading your books, and I, I, and I would say especially reading Cloud Cuckoo Land, that, that fun and that joy and love of, um, of language and, and really of storytelling is, is so apparent. And I'm so excited to talk to you because if I may say, I, I this is your best book. Uh, oh, that's nice, just, Leslie. I don't know. Awesome. Well, so, thanks. Let me just interject and say that you're such an example to me. So this is oh. Leslie's first collection, which Julian mentioned is called Monstrous Amazing Stories. He's super funny. This story, I, this novel, I feel like Leslie's really like emerged in, into this like embracing the larger form but it's all it's really in places it's bittersweet but it's also incredibly funny and we were friends with another writer amy Quanberry, who publishes under the name Quanberry, who's also an extremely funny person and her most recent book is also quite funny and it really the, those books are kind of inspirations to me they're a reminder that there should be joy in the work and that even though sometimes i'm trying to ask big questions about existential stuff like climate change or uh, the use of technology during the Second World War to control information. I think there is something about joy, chasing joy and delivering joy, at least oscillating between joy and larger, bigger questions in, in work. And I think a novel allows for that space, maybe a little better than a short story sometimes. Yeah. Well, Cloud Cuckoo Land is, is like doing that in, in spades. It's, it's such an amazing work. Um, so you, you're, you're talking about these big questions, Tony. Um, so I saw an awesome interview with you on CBS this morning. Okay. And I actually came across that accidentally. I was just like looking at YouTube. And I, for some reason, I love CBS this morning. I don't know why, but I do. And I was like, oh my God, it's Tony. And so I watched it. Um, and you, you, there's this great quote um, from your interview. You said with Cloud Cuckoo Land, you said, I'm going to try this big book of everything where I try to cram all my interests and passions into this one novel. Um, for the start of our conversation, you know, could you talk about the everythingness of this book? You know, what are, what are these interests and passions that, that, that you mentioned and, and how are those manifesting in these, you know, multiple storylines and these characters who, you know, we just 
characters that we've never seen before. How, how, how are you, what are these interests and passions that you're talking about in this book and, 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 and how is the book conveying them? Would you say? Sure, of course. Okay, I think I'll start, I think the best way to start trying to describe my entrance into this project, that book took me seven years, is to talk about this book, which took me 10 years. And this book, you can see sort of on the cover, if you don't know, sorry about this gorgeous October sunlight that's coming in here, but uh, th th it's about 60% of that novel takes place in a town in Brittany, France called Saint-Malo. It's got about two kilometers of medieval walls around it. It's a really extraordinary place. And those that was those walls were just this tiny, tiny fraction of Hitler's megalomaniacal attempt to build something called the Atlantic Wall. Thousands and thousands of metric tons of concrete are poured, slave labor, all these fortifications are built down the entire coast of Norway, down Denmark and Belgium, into the into France, all the way to the Franco-Spanish border. This attempt, like many tyrants who like to build walls, trying to try to maybe prevent an attack from the allies from the UK and America. And every text I would read about the history of defensive walls would discuss the walls of Constantinople as like the preeminent uh, defensive technology, really, of the medieval world. And I knew nothing, Leslie, about nothing about Constantinople. Like in Western civilization in high school, when I was paying attention, we went from like the fall of Rome and then the teacher would go, teacher would go like this. And then you're in the Renaissance, right? And there's like 1100 years just go by and you're like, well, I guess nothing must, nothing must have happened, you know? And so I love to use, I mean, I'm always going to be ignorant about so many things. And I'm going to die ignorant about so many things. Uh, but I love to use my projects as a way to rectify a few of those infinite ignorances. And so in this case, I, I, I've got some show and tell for everybody. So while I'm finishing all the light, I printed out this 15th century image of the walls of Constantinople. Let me see if I can get them up there. Yep. This is, you know, off the same printer I had in graduate school. And this, you know, it's just a crap. <laughs> Dot matrix. Not some glamorous thing. But I taped it up on the wall beside my desk. It's just as a reminder, maybe, of the, a next project. Because I'm like, here's something. These walls stood for a thousand years. They were triple walls. There's this massive inner wall and outer wall and this moat 60 feet across that they could flood at will, apparently. Although some historians debate whether or not they flooded it. And it stand, they stand until 1453 when this fascinating confluence of technologies comes into Europe. Gunpowder is taking hold. That's come in from the East. And then the printing press is being invented. Although some people may, maybe think that also was copied from some kind of movable bamboo type in China. And so just like in all the light where this, I was obsessed with this new technology of radio. What does radio, how does it change the way humans communicate and control information? Really, the project started with me trying to, when you say, asking me about my curiosities, I just wanted to understand what, what were these hugely disruptive technologies when this young sultan, it's always a young person who identifies the power of a new technology. He's 19 years old wow. and he hires this master founder, this guy Orban from Hungary or what we now call Hungary to pour these massive mega cannons and drags them to the fields of outside Constantinople and begins bombarding these walls. So there's this old technology that for, for the citizens of late Byzantium, they must've thought they had existed since the beginning of time and probably presumed they would exist until the end of time. And now, not only is there the physical bombardment of huge thousand pound cannonballs crushing these walls, but there's the psychological bombardment of something new really coming into their lives. And so I thought, okay, I've got a story here. There's something, there's something about that that I wanna research. So as I finished all the light, and then as, as a new presidential candidate is going around the United States leading crowds and chants of build that wall, you start thinking through, oh, I start reading about the histories of walls. And, you know, there's so much I can get into here, like the, these popular historians talking about how we gave up a foraging way of lifestyle. A lot of humans did anyway, as the, as the area between the Nile and Tigris rivers become super abundantly fertile after the last ice age, 15,000 years ago. Lots of humans decide to start settling down because suddenly life is easy. It's pretty easy to grow things. 
And maybe that's the time that we just developed the idea of private property and walls start getting built. Maybe the patriarchy also gets inv invented at this point because they want to hand, people want to hand down property. So maybe inequality also starts to come up at this time. And there's some arguments that that's when in the fossil record, that's when you start to see bones, uh, human bones with evidence of violence. Maybe war is also arriving at the same time. So walls have this big metaphorical and historical presence in my mind and, of course, in the novel as I start thinking through them. So those are just some of my preoccupations over the past seven years. But that's how I got started. That's how I got the entry was just starting with these two characters, Anna inside the walls of Constantinople and then Omir, this boy who's part of the Ottoman army coming to bring these huge cannons to try to knock down these walls and make them obsolete once and for all. Right. It's so interesting because that you, 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 this book be, you know, starts because of an interest or curiosity about walls. And yet it's, it's just so far flung because suddenly we are on an interstellar spaceship, which <laughs> doesn't have walls. But, but now that you're talking about walls, Constance is really walled in. So oh. how do you go from the walls that, that entrap you know, poor Anna and that, 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 that Omer is, you know, about to infiltrate, not necessarily by his own choice. How do you go from that to Argos, you know, or really to present day Idaho? You know, what, what's yeah. that mean? Okay, I'll get you there. Here we go. <laughs> so among the many uh, treasures that are able to be accumulated by the Byzantine Empire as this little like strategic headquarters that is Constantinople uh, during the centuries long conflict between Islam and Christianity, because people aren't able to siege the city, they accumulate insane wealth. P perhaps the world had never seen a concentration of wealth to that point, uh, as was evidenced in Constantinople. The best example I can give you is that the Hagia Sophia, the famous church, and still stands. At a certain point, it had four acres of gold mosaic in its vaulting. Like this place, you know, they've got oil from the Mediterranean. It's really the nexus of Asia and Europe. They've got the timber and furs from the north. They've got slaves, depending on the century, from all over the world. And they've, they've really got all kinds of wealth coming from the Black Sea, too. It's a really rich fishery, too. But among those thing, those items, I didn't quite feel that electric pull until I learned that books, books were part of the wealth of Constantinople. And as the copies of Greek and Roman classics are decaying all on the other places around Europe and North Africa, the, the final copies, the handwritten copies of these ancient texts are preserved inside these libraries, inside the imperial libraries, monastic libraries, and even private libraries. And people, some people think they were even lending libraries. And there were certain centuries when women were also encouraged to become literate. So it was a very literate society inside Constantinople for certain periods of time. So here are these schoolmasters and monks preserving these old texts. Then the canons come and knock them down. And perhaps we don't even get a renaissance without the flood of all this classical poetry and philosophy coming out that's preserved inside Byzantium and entering the, the intellectual worlds, the Islamic and, and European intellectual worlds. So I start to think, okay, that's it. I've got something. You know, 75% of the Greek classics that we have today, I think we have like 65,000 texts, something like that, 50,000 of them were only uh, reaching the present day because of the copies inside Constantinople. So I decided to have Anna become a reader and become passionate about reading stories that help her kind of escape the walls in a sense. And, uh, and so I decide that she's gonna have, she's gonna find the very last, I don't think this is a spoiler too much, Leslie, is she, she's gonna find the very last copy of a very old book and decide to save it. Just a humble little silly story. Yeah. But, Pretty early on in the project, I realized the best way to dramatize the effect, uh, the, the butterfly effect really of a single act of stewardship is to show it echo down through the centuries. The, the ridiculous metaphor I have that I know you're going to laugh at is the Plinko board in the Price is Right. <laughs> you know, when the chip bounces down <laughs> because I felt like- You are my yeah. favorite writer of all time. <laughs> 
<laughs> that was what she does. She sends it bouncing down through the, the, the pegs of history and it lands in the laps of characters. So I saw it other times when there was a confluence of technologies that disrupted existing power structures, just like the radio and all the light in the 1930s is really changing the way politicians and, and controlling misinformation. Really, you know, it's controlling the minds of millions of Germans and in the early and then especially in the late 30s. Same thing with this confluence of technology, the printing press and the cannons, gunpowder. I started to think, what other era? And of course, it's now. That's why I decided to have Zeno and Seymour working in the present day, have these characters living now in the information age when we have this rapidly changing climate, the biodiversity crisis all converging with a pandemic. And then we have uh, you know, this information age where we think Wikipedia should be delivering us almost comprehensive wisdom, but is it? And then I decided to show the book echo down a few more pegs and into the future. And that's Constance. That's why I decided to take that leap and invent Constance, which was a real, really terrifying leap. I'm sure you can relate. You're like, now I'm going to set part of this in the future. But I felt like the intersection of the promises of artificial intelligence and the dangers of it, and then climate chaos is what we're really thinking of it now as those two things intersecting in the future are going to present another big challenge to humans at that time. So I thought, this is what I'll do. I'll show the book ricochet through past, present and future. Yeah. Oh my God. I love the Plinko principle. Um, and it, it, it totally works. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to steal that at some point. Um, you talked about, you just used the word convergence. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm just kind of in awe um, by, you know, with this book. Um, in that CBS interview, um, you, you said writing this book was like juggle, like spinning uh, the plates on five different poles and, you know, keeping the reader, um, not only keeping the reader oriented, but really, because orientation is one thing, it's also a matter of keeping them invested. How did you not only juggle these multiple storylines, multiple timelines, I mean, one, how did you do that? What is the labor like? I mean, is it maps? Is it diagrams? But also, as a, as a, as a tag-on question, how do you keep the reader caring about these stories? Because I have to say, I cared about this book so early on. Oh, thanks, Leslie. 20 pages in, I was like, I care about this, you know? Oh, how do you do that? Oh, wow, you're so good at that. That's kind of like two separate parts of my brain that you're asking. Like the one is the schematic part where you're yeah. plotting those convergent points. And I'm happy to talk about that. Let's talk about the emotional part first, which you're so good at. Like the, I think about the the wife or the partner in Monstrous, this character, she's just like stuck with checkers, this silly filmmaker. But you just, within a paragraph, you just feel for her because she's like, she dresses up as all his monsters and she's just there for him. She's flying to the United States with him. And there's something about that you can't research. That's just humans. Like that's uh, uh, building kindness in, into your characters and building sympathy and empathy for your characters. That's stuff that I think Flannery O'Connor, somebody said, by the time you're 16, you've lived enough to write fiction for the rest of your life because you may have fallen in love by that point. You felt lost by that point. You've been angry at your parents. You've missed your parents. You've missed home perhaps. And so I do agree with that. But, um, you know, even though I spend so much of my time researching and trying to get the details of things, often what you're getting with Anna is just this chafing at authority. Like, I don't want to sit here and do any more embroidery. I want to dream myself outside the walls of Constantinople into this fantastical city of the birds. And so that's, that's I think, the key to all character creation is putting a sliver of your own heart into each one, even the bad actors. I think you even owe it more to the bad, the, the so-called bad actors. Uh, and then in terms of the schematic, like I've, I'm so fast, I'm so terrified that a reader would not be willing to let all five plates spin or that she would lose investment in one of the five or two of the five or God forbid, three of the five characters and just want to skip ahead to each. All the light had a structure of A, B, A, B. I moved back and forth between two characters, kind of like a ping pong match. Occasionally I disrupt that structure, but for the most part, I felt like, okay, they live in the same time. So even though they're just lightly inclined towards each other, I felt like I could trust a reader to anticipate that convergence point when they do finally meet. It's still not to like page 450 in that novel when they do meet. 
But here I'm asking a reader to anticipate an A, B, C, D, E structure and anticipate this big welter of cross connections and they don't live in the same time periods. So you have to be asking yourself how, and it's a big gesture of trust to a reader to keep turning pages. They, I need to earn their trust because I'm, I'm saying like, hang on, I hope you'll start to feel some resonances building as you turn pages between these characters. So I, I, I have some examples here that I can show you of like early, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, early iterations. Like here's one. This is called a Penrose Pentagon with the five characters. You know, and and this was a way I thought of the text in the center. This little story called called Cuckooland, which we can talk about, and the intertwining of these five. And could I keep this train moving between the five? And then another metaphor that I started to really get into is the metaphor of the rhizome which is a rootstock. It's, uh, you know, it's like this rootstock that is all interlinked underground. Think of irises or probably flower, most people know. And then they send up stems. But underneath, there's so many different subterranean connections. So I started to think, that's, that's, I think, what I can do. And then I think in that CBS interview, I showed the interviewer, Lee, this... Yeah. <laughs> this uh, map that I was drawing. So I was drawing all kinds oh, of maps awesome. to give you a sense, you know, of like, just to give you a sense of how I'm thinking about the plot and, and how I've got five characters over in this hand, and then they move through time. This is the center axis is of the story that a uh, story inside the story, and then trying to visualize how they intersect all the way through. I won't leave it up too long because there's a few spoilers in there. <laughs> did you, were you working on that map as you went along or you did that map at the start? Uh, no, I, I wish that would be so lovely, but no, you don't know, as you know, you don't know when you're starting, like where this thing's going to go. So I'm drawing rudimentary maps and maybe, you know, it's when you're doing the dishes or walking the dogs, you start thinking like, okay, what is this thing? And where is it going? How do I think of it in my head? Often I'd see concentric circles in terms of walls, like the Constance is inside this vault on this ship. And then there's these kids trapped in a library. We haven't talked about them yet, but they're kind of under siege. And then the walls of Constantinople ringing around Anna. So these circles inside circles, so maybe a couple of years in, I start thinking about drawing that that rhizomatic structure. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't until you know late that I start being able to piece the whole thing together. <clears throat> As folks might know, <clears throat> excuse me, I write in little chapterettes. Sometimes they're only two pages long or a page and a half. Sometimes I'll also lay them out on the carpet and try to see how they're try to represent visually almost how they're intersecting that way. You know, I almost wanted a reader to be able to read all five stories all at once, which would, of course, be impossible. So, you know, we're stuck in this very um, sequential kind of delivery method that is a book and trying to figure out how I could shatter each of these stories and keep them all spinning all at once. It was a big puzzle. Right. So is that map like, did you do several drafts of that map or is that the, that's the final version? Yeah, that's my final version anyway. Yeah, if it was fit for publication, I'd probably do a much better one. But yeah, that was my probably late um, late 2019 version of that map. Yeah. I would say you should put on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to read just a little section that um, I couldn't get out of my head. Um, okay. So in, in, in my version, uh, it's at the bottom of 171. Um, and this is, uh, I believe, this is a section with Anna. Yep. Um, who has, you know, recently learned to read and is now uh, kind of, well, I don't want to give any spoilers, but is, is doing cool things and acquiring texts. Yeah, um, no, I don't think that's a spoiler. Yeah, she's recently learned to read. Thanks so much, Leslie, for prepping me in advance so that I can yeah. find this. And I think, should I start with all useless down at the bottom? Of that would that? be great. Okay, yeah, perfect. And whatever context you want to provide. That's know. right. Yeah, so Anna is in Constantinople. We're, we're in 1452 here, right before the siege. Hopefully the reader starts to feel that siege coming. I've tried to lay some groundwork there. And uh, uh, she's, I think I can say she's harvesting texts from a totally decayed monastic library. Harvesting is a nice word. Stealing could be another verb. And uh, these are kind of like... In a sense, they're scribes, but they're also a little bit illicit. They're kind of scuttering into a, a decaying city and trying to steal manuscripts themselves, in a sense. All useless, the Italian concludes, rather cheerfully, and stacks four silver coins on the table. He looks at her. Do you know the story of Noah and his son's child? 
how they filled their ship with everything to start the world anew. For a thousand years, your city, this crumbling capital, he waves a hand toward the window, was like that ark. Only instead of two of every living creature, do you know what the good Lord stacked inside this ship? Beyond the shuttered window, the first cocks crow. She can feel Himerius. This is a boy she's stealing books with. She can feel Himerius twitching beside the fire, all his attention on the silver. Books, the scribe smiles. And in our tale of Noah and the ship of books, can you guess what is the flood? She shakes her head. Time. Day after day, year after year, time wipes the old books from the world. The manuscript you brought us before, that was written by Alien, a learned man who lived at the time of the Caesars. For it to reach us in this room, in this hour, the lines within it had to survive a dozen centuries. A scribe had to copy it, and a second scribe, decades later, had to recopy that copy, transform it from a scroll to a codex. And long after the second scribe's bones were in the earth, a third came along and recopied it again. And all this time, the book was being hunted. One bad-tempered abbot, one clumsy friar, one invading barbarian, an overturned candle, a hungry worm, and all those centuries are undone. Should I stop there, Leslie? Yeah, that's great. Okay. When I remember when I got to that point, when I read this, I, I just kept reading that paragraph over and over again. It's it's just so beautiful and 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 really just uh, just really it's really moving because. You know, I also understand you, you used this word earlier. This is a book about stewardship and it is a book dedicated to librarians. And so much of this book is about the immortality of text, but also the ways generations will take responsibility for this immortality. Could you talk about how, you know, just you dedicated this to the librarians. How, how does the idea and, and your experience with the library, how did it inform uh, this novel? Yeah, such a nice question. Really well said. Um, so mom was a science teacher and uh, she taught high school and was tired <laughs> a lot. And I didn't realize that, of course, as a kid, me and my older brothers were always just bothering her, I think. But she was an amazing mom and she would drive us off. And on the way home from school, she would leave us, drop us at the library and probably grade papers or figure out how to feed us. And I had two older brothers and wanted desperately to keep up with them in all ways. And so I often would just try to keep up with their reading tastes or whatever they were borrowing. But the library really became a third place for us between home and school, a place of total safety and exploration and discovery, really. I mean, if you think about it, it's a total miracle. You get to go take some public property and take it home. And like spill chocolate milk on it, you know, and like, I, and of course I take home Peanuts comics or Calvin and Hobbes comics or stuff, you know, that was appropriate for my reading age. But sometimes I'd also bring home uh, Paul Bowles is the example that I usually get. Like I brought home the sheltering sky when I'm like 12 years old, there's like a murder and hashish smoking. And you know, I don't even understand half the stuff that's going on in it. But the fact that nobody tells you no, and that you get to take it home and have it in your bed, like you get to experience and smell this book and learn how to care for public property is such such an incredible gift and and when you're a kid you think libraries are just like a writer series like this you think these things just exist and like leaves on trees or like winter and then you, it's not until you become an adult and really for me it's embarrassingly late into my adulthood that i realize it's humans that are making these things happen humans are funding them humans are keeping them built building them and you know refitting them when the roof leaks and and giving them a budget to buy new books and to kind of steward the collective human wisdom so that it's available for people public libraries are our last public indoor space especially in the winter somewhere like traverse city michigan where it gets cold like there's not a lot of places a person can go and stay warm and use the bathroom and use the internet if we don't have public libraries so there's such vital nexuses in our communities. And I just wanted to ask questions all through the novel about destruction and erasure on one side and preservation and conservation on the other. And whether that means the preservation of our shared planet and the other species with which we share this planet 
or human culture and human stories. And you realize that the only, like the, that 75% statistic I gave you earlier, the only reason those, those stories survived, the only reason maybe we have certain texts by Plato or certain plays by Euripides is because one schoolmaster one day decided not to scrape it, but to preserve it, to decide to recopy it. So I wanted to dramatize that, but one little action, you never know what one little action like Anna takes and then later Zeno and Seymour take, how those actions will reverberate down through time. Yeah. That's, that's, that's beautiful. And, and the whole book, I mean, page by page is a, is a, is a tribute to, to libraries and librarians. Um, speaking of libraries, um, there was a question um, and, and perhaps you've addressed this somewhat, but I think this is more specified toward, toward your own work. Um, the Traverse Area District Library asked, uh, in thinking about where you started and who you are now as a writer, how did libraries contribute to the process? So you've been talking about the idea of stewardship and what libraries do for humanity. Um, what about what libraries did for, you know, Tony Dorr, writer? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> writer in training. Oh my gosh. So, you know, I grew up in a place, maybe not that unlike Traverse City, where, you know, I grew up in rural Ohio. My dad worked in Cleveland, so I say Cleveland a lot, but we were 45, 50 minutes away. And Dad ran a little printing company that made stickers and my mom was a teacher, so we didn't have tons of money. And the house wasn't necessarily full of books, but it was full of library books. His dad would get like the Spencer for hires or like these spy thrillers out. And mom was always had so many books to help her teach. She was like reading Rachel Carson and Aldo Leopold and uh, Edward Abbey, all these environmental writers she loved so much and Annie Dillard. Uh, so our book, our home was always just full of curiosity, I think. And that, that was only due really to the library. And then as you know, it's not like maybe I think you can probably relate. Let's see. It's not like we had writers over for dinner or like I was being taken to the to the writers, you know, the national writers series. Like I, I didn't I thought writers lived in Paris or were dead, basically. <laughs> you know? So I think uh, the fact that you could go study the work of masters for free was so compelling to me, even though I was way too shy to ever tell anybody, it would have seemed too pretentious and scary to me to say, I would like to be a writer. I was trying, I was imitating work really early. I was, you know, borrowing my mother's typewriter and writing stories about my toys. Uh, and I think that's all kind of due to my exposure for, to stories at the library. And then as I get older, I remember this is just occurring to me now with that question is when I finally got into graduate school, the only graduate school I got into with any kind of funding was Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And I rented an apartment, I think it was for $400 a month above a garage. It was about a mile from campus, but it was really close to the public library in Bowling Green. And I didn't know anything about the professors there. So I walked over to the public library and got Wendell Mayo's book out of the public library, who was going to be teaching my class in a week. I was like unpacking my, my pillow. You know, I think I made $12,000 that year or whatever. You know, you have no money, barely enough money to eat. So the library just helped me understand like who were my teachers going to be. And yeah. uh, and I remember like the power of the National Book Award sticker on like a, a book. You're like, well, this book must be really special. I'm going to take this one home and give it a try. You know, something so amazing about that. And, and now I think it's wonderful that something like filmmaking, you know, the, the phone has allowed my kids to explore that art making with without having to have a couple thousand dollars. But when we were kids, you, could, you couldn't go make films without money. And yet I, I feel like writing still, writing and drawing, of course, are such democratic art forms because all you really need to do is be able to feed yourself and maybe buy $5 with a paper and get a pencil and you can write. It's kind of beautiful. We're all using these free structures that are words, these used and abused structures of language that we all share to try to make things. It's kind of beautiful. Yeah. Gosh, I hope what you just said will be like put on YouTube and played over and over because it's such a wonderful advocacy for the library. Um, I'm going to switch gears and maybe talk a little bit about writing life, life and writing, because I think I think readers are often curious about that. Um, you work really hard. You, you and, and, and the work pays off and it's and it's obvious what um, maybe what's a typical writing day for you? Well, I, I step off the yacht around 6 a.m. <laughs> oh, it's, oh that, that, that late, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I, uh, even before we had children, I've rented a space outside the house. Once we moved to Boise for a while, both you and I were chasing fellowships. Leslie has a fellowship at Harvard right now, which I'm sure is too shy to admit, but, uh, often those would allow us, uh, a year without teaching. Teaching is wonderful. I love being around young people. As I get older, they help me understand how to update my operating system, for example, and, you know. But uh, often I do, I just don't know, I, I hope I, it's okay if I swear, but I, I just don't know how to half-ass the teaching part. And often then if I'm even teaching one or two classes, that's 40, 50 hours a week. And I just, that's all I end up doing is working with students on their manuscripts, which is really rewarding and fun, but it's hard then to get home and work. So on my best days, I'm not teaching and I get to wake up in the morning uh, my very best days, I don't even look at my email or especially like in the run up to the last election, I don't look at the New York Times, anything like that. And I turn on Freedom. Have we ever talked about this, Leslie, before this app called Freedom? Oh, yeah, I have Freedom. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I think it's five bucks or 10 bucks. Yeah. Or something. yeah. And it shuts down all the networking on your computer for as many hours or minutes as you tell it to. So I always put some hugely ambitious number in there, like 7.5 hours. And then later, of course, my you know, I'm like, why isn't my email working at noon? But then I try, I put on headphones for a long time before all the light, all I had were chainsaw operator earmuffs, but then I got fancy and bought noise canceling Bose headphones. I put those on. I don't even listen to music. It's just something ritualistic almost about putting those on. And then I try to write, but I also want to disabuse people of the notion that that's just like, now it's time to invent characters. Often writing is, it's kind of like farming. I've heard people say like, there's so many different elements to it. Like there's research, there's reading through what you've got. There is confronting the blank page. There's also the stuff I was describing, structural stuff where you're laying things out and trying to understand how things will piece together. So I just try to say, as long as I'm there and present, even if it's just a brutal day and you're feeling low, Maybe the best analogy for folks to understand is exercise. Just as long as you show up some days that you feel really good and limber and your legs are working and you feel strong. And other days you just like, oh, I have a headache. But showing up every day, I think is one of the most important things, especially later in a project. I, I find that my subconscious stops working on a project if I leave it for even about 48 hours. So even say over Thanksgiving, I try to just open it just for a few minutes, even if that's all I have, 20 minutes, just make, read through a chapter of say Anna's, just try to get it a little stronger. And that way later in the day, my subconscious tends to operate on that while I'm walking the dogs or even just taking a shower or something. Sometimes then you start to solve the problems of work. And one, one other thing, the best thing about being downhill in a project like that, once you kind of understand it and you kind of know the characters, is then the whole world becomes relevant to it. Suddenly you go to a film and there's pieces of that that you're like, that's good. Like, I like that technique. I might use that. Or you see leaves just skittering down the pavement, catching the sunlight. And you're like, that's going in. And so, so your life becomes like material. It becomes deeply relevant. It's almost pulsing with meaning. And there's something so wonderful about being in a project like that. I miss that right now. And I can't wait to get back to the next thing. Right. Good reminder. Jeez. I was going to go to a bar after this, but I think I should go home. And <laughs> it's Thursday. Um, oh, it's tomorrow. <laughs> um, do you, you know, you know, it's actually looking like we've got questions in the chat. I, of course, I have like a ton more questions, but I want to make sure I share the time with um, our wonderful audience here. So I'm going to look at some of the questions. Um, here's one from Carrie B. Uh, how does it feel to write the violent episodes your characters are subjected to? Ooh, That's wow, yeah. Go carry B. Good question. Um, scary sometimes. I think, um, especially those first drafts when you're like, oh boy, uh, there's a, a episode at the very end of all the light. That's a rape. That was, I was reading lots and lots and lots of uh, testimonies of women in Berlin, especially as the Red Army comes in to Berlin, they've, the Russians have suffered so many brutal losses. So you read about the anger on their side and then this terror on the side of the people, especially in Berlin, but all of these different towns through Germany. Um, so yeah, there can be some trauma. I don't want to say that it's as traumatic as going through an experience, of course, writing about an experience, but uh, there's something that happens to Anna's sister in the novel that's quite brutal. Um, so yeah, I, I, 
I think sometimes you just have to sleep. Sleep is this wonderful thing that helps you each day. You just write this really clunky attempt first day. Sleep kind of clears your mind of some of the noise. You go back in the subsequent draft. You try to enrich it, maybe remove things that might be too painful for readers. But you also owe it to your readers to show both sides of life. You know, I think when Leslie's asking me about the book of everything, there's lots of moments where I'm trying to show the flip side of the life can be utterly brutal and yet it can be utterly beautiful when you know you go back and read homer on the early early classics there's so even so many of the homeric similes all convey this this uh, you know often the armies are compared to nature like these um like wild birds coming off marshes that's how he describes the greek armies as they flow towards uh, the walls of Troy, or when a boy soldier dies, this boy called Gorgithian, a young son of uh, Priam in the Iliad, he describes his head falling like the, the heavy head of a poppy wet with rain. So something like this un, unopened poppies using a, this image of spring and life to echo this early death. I think all literature somehow is always trying to walk that dialectic between the beauty and the ugliness of life. So. Yeah. And you, you, I mean, you tow that line so, you know, beautifully, you know, even in the most difficult moments of the book. Um, oh, here's a really cool question uh, from Karen Anderson. You mentioned that you were able to read, that, that you were able to read any book at your local library when, when you were growing up. Were you ever told that you were not ready to read a specific book? Yeah, great question. Certainly not by my mom. I think mom was just trusted that if I didn't understand it, then that meant, you know, I wasn't ready for it. I remember my brothers with some of the Stephen King stuff, they, they just talked about it like so excitedly, you know, because it was uh, it's transgressive almost how dark some of that stuff was. But I remember my brothers being like, you're not ready for that, but that just would make me want to read it even more. But I do not have a memory of a librarian saying like, you know, because those were the days they stamped your book. Right. And I do not have a memory of somebody saying like, no, I think they probably knew that I was a kind of a different weirdo kid who was mm -hmm. just taking out tons of stuff. Uh, but no, I don't have that memory. And I, I don't necessarily know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't, I'm not educated enough to say like, we should stop kids from reading things. But I would say certainly with my own sons, I thought if they want to try something, grab it off the shelf and go for it. You know, I think that's okay. Awesome. Well, speaking of your sons, here's a question uh, from Catherine uh, D. De Good, I think. Um, as a parent, how have you fostered reading and writing in your kids in their teenage years versus the ease of sitting down and reading picture books with the little ones? Catherine, I have a lot of insecurity and anxiety about it. It was so joyful the first 10 years when you know, I read to them every night I was home and, uh, you know, we went through the whole JK Rowling series and we go through the mouse and the motorcycle. And, you know, we read so many books together and uh, then, you know, they grow up and then they live in this, you know, our children sounds like you may have children around the same age, or even if you don't, uh, my kids are growing up in the wild west of phones. Like there are no restrictions. I'll never forget. And they were, according to them, the last kids in seventh grade not to have phones. And even their schools were reinforcing it that when they did class elections for vice president or something of the seventh grade, they said, okay, kids, get out your phones and vote. And my kids were the only kids without phones. So they were like in tears because they were like, ah, so finally we get them phones. And then they're begging for Instagram. And all I can hear is like, oh, what Instagram does to people's attention spans and does to young girls' self-esteem. But I'm like, okay, I guess we need to let them have Instagram. And so as, as they've gotten older, I know that I don't want them to feel left out socially, but there are times I'm like, I wish I had just never given them these things in the first place. It definitely has uh, attacked their reading time. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, however, real benefits to living in Idaho and maybe in Michigan too, in that I can get the kids to places where their phones don't work. So often we try to, in the year, build in time in places, uh, you know, whether backpacking or camping or just go rent a, a VRBO somewhere. And uh, then suddenly they become fascinating, interesting people again that want to play board games and read books before bedtime. Uh, but we live in this home full of printed materials and often they're just scrolling through their phones and I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm not a parent, but it, it sounds like you, it sounds like you're doing your best and, and recognizing that, you know, you kind of got to belong to the world too. So sometimes those screens are necessary, yeah. but I'm glad. Do you feel that Leslie, sometimes on your own phone though, do you feel like, oh, I should be reading tonight and I'm scrolling? Oh my God. All the time. All the time. 
It's terrible. It's terrible. But uh, these times. Um, here's a question. Uh, kind of a this is a, a, a kind of a big important question. Um, uh, the most recent. This is from Bonnie Spanier. Um, the most recent effort to destroy public libraries was the Republican Party's agenda codified by Newt Gingrich. He wanted to close them down. Would you comment on how that one stance relates to your book? Uh, not informed well enough on Newt's campaign to close libraries, but I do think often, like, could you imagine passing a program to propose public buildings that have books in them that are free for people to take out? Could you imagine getting that passed through Congress right now? Uh, I hope in some tiny way, just by writing this book and continuing to visit libraries and speak on behalf of them, that I can try to continue to remind people of their importance. I think there's this uh, sometimes a well-meaning, but maybe possibly ignorant stance that, oh, well, now that we have the internet, libraries are less important. And it's so important to remember, first of all, lots and lots of Americans don't have any access to the internet at all. And right. this is a place where you, you know, to apply for a job now to get so many government services, you need an internet connection. And our country is big. This isn't Denmark, where it'd be much easier to lace the entire country with Wi-Fi. This is uh, incredibly, you know, where I live, there's so much space. And so um, libraries are lifelines in rural communities for people um, and, and of course in urban communities too. So um, I'm not sure if I can comment on Newt and his crazy theories, but I, as long as I can keep trying, we tried to build a new branch library here in, in Boise and it was quite an education and some of the political infighting about that stuff. I just thought everybody loves libraries. Like, of course, we're gonna be able to raise money for this. But uh, I learned a lot and grew up a lot through that process. And I just try to be in my own little way an advocate. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I, I just think, you know, we take it, we, we think it's a given that everybody has access to the internet, that everybody has a smartphone. And it is completely untrue. And the libraries are godsends and lifelines for those who, who can't afford them, you know, or just somehow don't have access to them. So I, I appreciate you saying that. Absolutely. Let me just plug you this most oh. recent book by you, Leslie, is about an undocumented kid. And it's it was such another reminder, like how complicated stuff is when you don't have documents. Like there's just, if you get injured, like how do you decide whether or not you're going to go to the hospital? And so there's so many times I take my privilege for granted. Growing up without much money, I was just thought, well, I'm grinding like the rest of everybody. But it's just been in the past really 10 years that I've learned like, oh my gosh, I had so many advantages I didn't even realize. So every day, trying to rectify another ignorance like that yeah oh. um okay the more questions um oh here's an interesting one do you ever change or massage details of history to better fit the story you are crafting <laughs> that's a good I like one. that i like massage yeah massage is great uh I've, i try very hard not to uh, there is a line from the Paris Review interview with Hilary Mantel. She's a, a wonderful British writer who is most well-known for these uh, Cromwell novels, the Wolf Hall trilogy. The last one just came out last year. Some wonderful trilogy of books, if you guys haven't heard of them. But this review, uh, uh, the, in the Paris Review interview with her, she, the uh, interviewer asked, have you ever massaged a historical detail? Something like that. And she goes, just a little... I would never do that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, because there were moments, uh, especially say like the invasion of France uh, when, you know, a lot of Parisians don't even think anybody's going to want to repeat the horrors of World War One, and in comes Germany and this blitzkrieg moving really quickly into France. And suddenly everybody's surprised. June of 1940, here they come and they're taking Paris. And there, you know, I make, I've spent 10 years on this book, so I'll make all kinds of notes, but sometimes the weather on certain days I would mess up or I'd be like, I think it was raining on this June day when the, when the Germans come into Paris and trying to verify that stuff. You know, you're like, okay, I don't have a research staff. I don't, it's just me. And I'm, and I know there's like so many readers out there that you're trying to, it's really important. Actually, you're trying to knit together this dream you know, the, the root of the word authority is author. And you, you don't want your reader, even an expert in say, meteorology from the 1940s, you don't want that that dream to be broken for her. Uh, so I, I'll never forget my first book called The Shell Collector. I got a letter from a marine biologist maybe three months after it came out. It's like, you messed up this shell in the Indian Ocean. The snail doesn't exist there. I'm like, oh, and then, you know, you feel this crushing feeling like, oh, I wish I could fix that. 
but you realize, you know, you're just one human, you're going to be fallible. I do my best, you know, and then what's wonderful is if your book's lucky enough to be reprinted or with ebook, I can have my editor magically fix some mistake I made (laughs) while like while your nook or your Kindle's sitting on the nightstand and you're asleep, I can just like beam the little update in there and suddenly I fixed a mistake. I had no idea you could do that. (laughs) Yeah. I think a reader has to actually allow for that to happen or have the book be updated, but uh, yeah, of course, like, you know, they, uh, they're always somehow, you know, fixing and repairing things. I think that's kind of magical. So, so yeah, if you find errors in Cloud Cuckoo Land, you're welcome to look for an email address on my website and tell me about it. <laughs> uh, here's a good one. Uh, can, uh, this is from Deanna Williams. Can you tell us how you name your novels? Do you start with a title and build a story or the reverse? How did the name Cloud Cuckoo Land come to be? Oh yeah, good one, Deanna. Plus, we haven't even talked about the what this phrase means. All oh, right. Uh, usually, um, titles come late to me, and I'm quite terrified because the writer Steve Allman once told me a story without a title is like a body without a head. I'm like, oh no, like is that important? Uh, <laughs> And the, the title, All the Light We Cannot See, came to me before I started the novel. I was on a train and this guy was complaining about a cell reception. And I just started thinking like, you know, dude, like, you know, you're taking for granted that you can use invisible light, you know, traveling between ta- multiple towers at the speed of light to have this mundane conversation that you're having. So I thought I wanted to tell a story about all this, you know, electromagnetic communication, all this light we can't see, this vast spectrum of light that humans aren't able to detect. In the case of Cloud Cuckoo Land, I was a couple of years in. Um, so Cloud Cuckoo Land, for those folks who've never heard it before, is uh, from this play called uh, The Birds by Aristophanes, 2,400 years old. He was a comic playwright in Athens, and uh, apparently he wrote over 100 comedies. We have seven left. The Birds is about kind of the original buddy comedy. Will Ferrell would probably be in the movie if it was being made today. (laughs) These two doofuses decide to leave Athens, mostly because there's too many lawyers, and they decide to found a better city. And they decide to have it in the sky, halfway between the realm of humans on the earth and the gods in the heavens. And the birds help them build this place, and it's called Cloud Cuckoo Land. And like most utopian stories, of course, it doesn't turn out as great as they thought. One becomes a tyrant. They start eating the birds that helped them build the city. Uh, And it may be the first really utopian, the first Western utopian story written down. And as I was watching, as I was watching my kids grow up and take in so much dystopian narrative, it seemed like every time I go downstairs, there's another like planet or city exploding on the TV, like superheroes whizzing all over the place above the flames. I just started thinking, what would it be like to explore utopian questions? So I was probably two years in when I decided I was going to have this invented text titled Cloud Cuckoo Land about a silly shepherd who sees Aristophanes' play, decides Cloud Cuckoo Land is a real place and tries to get there. I thought that too was a risk and scared me a little bit because I worried people would think it was you know, a children's story, people who hadn't heard the phrase. And also because in British English, it's used often as a disparaging thing. Um, if they said, oh, Tony, he thinks COVID will go away tomorrow. He's living in cloud cuckoo land. It's kind of the same the way we say, oh, he's got his head in the clouds. But there's also something beautiful about having your head in the clouds too. You know, you don't always want to have your feet on the ground. I think, you know, at, especially at this time, I think it's really important to ask kids, ask young people, you know, what is your utopia? And How can we work a little harder to try to get there? So the whole novel explores each of the characters kind of has this distant fantasy land in their minds. And then they kind of have to rectify this this compromise that is real life, that is this earth that we're living on right now. Well, I'm hoping we can get cloud cuckoo land, you know, back into the vernacular here. I love that phrase. It's also... Fun fact, um, I don't know if you remember the Lightning Seeds, Tony. Do you remember that band, the Lightning Seeds? They had an album called Cloud Cuckoo Land. I learned this only since finishing the novel. I know oh, that it was in the Lego movie, though. Did you know that, Leslie? There's a, I didn't see the Lego movie. The I Lego movie, it. I think like 2014, maybe I've got, I might have that date wrong. But yeah, they these characters, visit, there must be some fan of the classics working at Lego because these characters visit Cloud Cuckoo Land. It's quite a funny little episode you can find on YouTube. It's like three minutes of the Lego movie. They're in Cloud Cuckoo Land. All right, I'm going to look that up tonight. Um, here's a question from Jess Lederman. Do you like to get feedback from a circle of people as you're writing from, from the beginning, or do you wait until you're further along the process? 
Great question, Jess. And Leslie and I are old friends who shared work for a long time with each other. And uh, I do think building a circle of friends, uh, friends or colleagues or relatives, whoever can be honest with you is so important because ultimately writing is an optimistic thing. You're assuming that you can communicate with a stranger. And so you need to start showing it to people to understand really what it is to defamiliarize it from yourself. You're so up to your neck in your work sometimes that showing it to other people is so important. Uh, that said, as I've grown as a writer, I usually wait until I know there are still things wrong with it, but I can't see them anymore. I can't quite articulate what they are. And that's when I'll first show it to my wife, Shauna, and she'll read it. And you know, of course, I'm a total nervous wreck while she's reading through it. But it's not at the beginning. It's often pretty late in the process. I'm maybe 80% of the way there. And then you just, as I'm sure many people who have shared whatever, quilting or music, whatever you're interested in making, have shared with other people, it's a fraught time. And you just have to be mature and you have to sleep on the critique and know that uh, ultimately sleep will help you understand where they're right. And often people can always aren't trained the way Leslie and I, when we get our MFA, you get some language to help articulate why something might not be working, but almost all humans have been taking a narrative for so long that we can sense when something isn't working, when there's slack, when something needs to be developed more. And so even if your friends or family aren't able to quite articulate why something isn't working, you should listen to their feedback if you can. Great. Um, here's a question. You might've talked about this a little bit earlier, but maybe you can give an example. Can you tell a story or two about how you research your books? What are your main methods? So this is so deeply researched, exclamation point. That's from Heather Shoemaker. Thanks, Heather. Um, yeah, of course, I'd love to hear Leslie talk about this too. Um, I think I think of it as kind of like a three-part thing. It's part travel or at least like personal experience. Often I'm not writing about places that are immediately familiar to me. So the best case scenario is I've been there before, before I ever decided to set something there. Uh, and then I, I, I keep a daily journal. So I'll have some notebook, something like that. I wrote for a long time for Condé Nast Traveler too. So I get sent to places. So at least I may have some details I can start to use. And then the best case scenario is I'm pretty late in the project, maybe 70% of the way through pre-pandemic, obviously. And I get to go there and then get more stuff, get details, get the birds, get the light, talk to people, try to understand what's happening there, whether it's set in the present or not, try to understand that place. That's certainly, I went and took uh, three different trips to Saint-Malo in France for the novel, All the Light We Cannot See. The, the second prong is reading. I think uh, reading all kinds of stuff, you know, it doesn't have to be secondary sources for historical work, although that's helpful to get a big global picture, but often, oral histories that have been written down, um, uh, art diaries were really important to me and and all the light. And in this, in this novel, chroniclers, you know, there's these chroniclers often with a really strong political agenda of aggrandizing some actor in say the siege of 1453. But you can still get a lot of interesting stuff like what were people wearing on their heads or what, you know, what did they eat? Diet is so hard sometimes. Like in the Ottoman army, the 15th century, I'm like, I have no idea. So sometimes I'd even reach into a century later sometimes to try to figure out what Omir might be eating as he's he and his oxen are bringing these giant cannons and then the third is imagination i think often imagination allows you to fill in detail that feels persuasive because sometimes the real world is so full of detail that you're not selective enough you know like you sit in istanbul and there's so much happening that sometimes you need to come back home and use your imagination to fill in you might need the light to do something different you might need the the clouds to suck light out of a moment in a scene because that echoes something that's happening inside of a character. Uh, so sometimes the real world can be a little bit too much. So I like to try to keep at least a third of the pie imagination. Right. What do you think, Leslie? How much research is going on for you? You know, right now, one of the perks of being here at, at Radcliffe at Harvard is we get research assistants. And my research assistant, um, every week I send him the 10 to 12 of the most random questions ever. I, I needed to know how many Subway sandwiches there are in this, in a, like a 20 mile radius uh, in this part of Montana. I needed to know um, 
what, you know, how, how do you get a job on a luxury cruise liner that takes you to the Arctic? So I, it's all just these random questions that come to my head and it, it, it makes it, it's work though to, to accumulate all this information. So to have someone do it for you is super, super fun. Yeah, that sounds great. I want that. Perk. It's a good perk. So I'm going to take another question from the chat and I'm going to be selfish and ask you uh, my final question. Um, and I think that'll probably take us, you know, pretty much to the end. Um, Barbara Stark Neiman asks, you certainly don't have to any longer, but do you ever think of marketability when you're writing? Marketability of your work. Marketability. Thanks, Barbara. Um, boy, you try not to. There are moments, of course, in the dead of night when you're sweating through your sheets and you're like, capitalism has entered your brain. But Capitalism is a dangerous thing to make work, make art from, I think. Uh, so no, I mean, if I was thinking about that, I just had written a World War II novel, like to think now I'm going to write a novel called Cloud Cuckoo Land set in three time periods. Like nobody <laughs> would have ever encouraged me in the marketing. You sell market. out. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, that said, I understand where that question might be coming from. And I totally right. understand the panic in the beginning of a career. You're like, will anybody be interested in this? And there's so much, um, so much, especially in American culture attached to, if you like look at the word success in the thesaurus, there's so much attached to money and capitalism and market and uh, celebrity even somehow is attached to that. And so it's really important to define your own definition of success. Um, you know, I got used to people saying, congratulations on the success of your book when it came to All the Light We Can't See, or people assuming that was the only book that I had written. I'm like, well, I have these four other kids right. of mine too, but no, people only like this blonde, shiny one over here, you know? And so, uh, often I just have to say, for me, success is finishing something that I can be proud of. And um the really the success is the work take, taking joy I, you know leslie's story at the beginning of the hour is so funny to me because there are lots of days i don't feel joy in writing but there is a real pleasure in finding something that totally engages you and the, entering that flow entering that place where the whole world falls away and you're just totally preoccupied with solving these little problems that you've made for yourself in the language and I feel so blessed to do that, that ultimately I think the success is in that. It's just in making the thing. So I think go build your castles in the air and don't worry if anybody wants to enter them. Just build them for the pleasure and the joy of building them. Make the music to make the music, not to hear the screams at the end of the, the song. So uh, that's my advice anyway. Yeah. It seems a little maybe naive, but that's my advice. It's not naive and it's totally true because like, like Tony said, We've known each other a long time and I was reading your work before it was getting published and it was all about just creating these worlds and you, you I mean you invent something out of nothing and, and, and what you invent is fantastic and you did it without any sense of guarantee you did it for the pleasure of it um, and for the love of the work and uh, and everyone should also I mean Cloud Cuckoo Land is awesome All Light We Cannot See is awesome don't forget those other kids Shell Collector memory wall They're, the books are so good um okay i'm gonna be really selfish and take the last few minutes um i thought i would do it doesn't have to be rapid fire but in my mind it's kind of rapid fire so you you can take a, you can take some pause to think of um to think of the answers i always love getting recommendations about non-writing things from writers so i'm going to ask you to recommend some some things just to keep people entertained or to keep people thinking about stuff especially you know we are still in the pandemic so um, the, the, this, this could help pass the time for, for people. Okay, I'm um, like, could you recommend, um, a TV show? Yes. Our mutual friend, Amy Quamberry about a month ago said, have you watched the chair on Netflix? Do you know this series? I haven't seen it, but I have heard of it. Yeah. Okay. It's got Sandra. Oh, and I'm like, no, I hadn't heard of it. That was first person. And so I think it was, yeah, maybe, I don't know, a week after that, Shauna, my wife's like, let's watch a show. I'm like, okay, let's try this one. And it's, I think it was only six episodes, but it's funny, really funny. And she's, she's an Asian American who becomes head of a very staid English department that's used to white dudes running the department. And she has to deal with, she, she's so good at playing a frazzled character and she has to deal with so much stuff coming at her from cancel culture to like an office leaking. And anyway, it's a good show. I recommend it. Okay, the chair, got it. Um, movie. 
movie. Okay, I just, I read this glowing review of this really strange movie called The Green Knight. Have you heard of that? No. Is it okay. new? The Green Knight? Yeah, it was new this year, but now you can get it on streaming. And so my son, who's really interested in making film, I'm like, we're going to do this. We're going to watch The Green Knight. It's the actor from Slumdog Millionaire who plays the star. It's based on an old medieval uh, story, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And it is so weird and so visually powerful. Owen kept looking at me, you know, he's 17. He's like, what are we watching? <laughs> but uh, the Green Knight, I think it's possible that it could be like mentioned for some very strange film awards next winter. It's very okay. good. The Green Knight. Weird. Um, <laughs> fashion trend. <laughs> oh my gosh, Leslie, you're so much farther along than me. My fashion trend is just the same boring crap. I oh here's my tip. It I just have to be a trend. It can be an article of clothing. What do you like? What's good? Uh, is this is going to be sort of related. I just went on a 10 city tour for the first time. I left the state of Idaho and did uh, I did 11 cities. I, sorry, 10 cities, 11 days on this. Wow. And went to independent bookstores where they, they have offsite venues. You have to show proof of vaccination. Often there'd be space between people, but it was really moving and humbling to be in around people again. And I got packing cubes. They're like these, have you heard about these things? Yes. Yes. They're amazing. <laughs> and you can control all your clothes because I wanted to carry on. I'm like, it was all the COVID stuff. Like, I just want to get through the airports as fast as possible. So I use packing cubes to control my lousy, lame, 47-year-old male fashion. But <laughs> packing cubes are amazing. And then you like, once you get one, just like a brick of dirty clothes, you never have to open it. And each time you get to the hotel, you can just lift your stuff out, grab your sport coat for the night, stuff all your stuff back in. Totally sold on packing cubes. Got it. <laughs> I wrote down packing cubes. Okay. I'm I, Just two more because I'm having too much fun asking you these questions. Food. Food, just any food in general. Any food. Is there some food that you're just really fascinated about right now that you're just like everyone should have this food? Uh, yes. So, XL makes ramen with an egg in it, and I've always been in this novel, and I'm always too chicken to have the egg. Like I'm always like, oh, they put an egg in the ramen. But lately, I'm into it. I'm into the raw egg getting dropped in the boiling water. The boiling All right. water. The yeah. power of literature. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, because I you've you've been so generous generous with your time and, and indulging all these questions, so thank you. But lastly, um, your books take us to so many places, and you're well traveled, and you 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 travel for research. Um, when 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 we are all collectively in a better, safer world, uh, where is a good place for us to go? Hmm. Oh, there's a lot. Uh, Sardinia. Sardinia is so amazing. It's so beautiful and raw and wild. And you can bring this book by D.H. Lawrence called The Sea in Sardinia When You Go. But we went when we were in Rome. So it was a long time ago now, 17 years. But did you ever go when you were in Italy? No, we went to Sicily instead. That was our group trip with Sicily. But Sicily. I, I wanted to go to Sardinia. Sicily is really special too, but Sicily is a little crowded for me. And I get a little panicky and like so many people <laughs> in these walled towns. Sardinia, the sea is just this bright, bright, like Gatorade blue. And it's just a, it's a really special place. You have to rent a car and kind of figure it out. But if anybody yeah. gets a chance to go to Italy and you're doing the more classic tour of like Tuscany or Umbria in Florence, maybe try out Sardinia if you want a little more wild adventure. Okay, good tip. All right, Tony, um, thank you for your time and thank you for Cloud Cuckoo Land. Um, I'm not just saying this because you're my friend and one of my favorite people on the planet, but Cloud Cuckoo Land, it's the kind of, I, I read this book and I was like, this is why I read. I mean, really, it's it's why I read. It's escapism at its best, but it's the kind that really returns you to, to, to where you are and, and maybe to where you belong, but with a different, sense of understanding or maybe a different set of questions for that place um, that, that you didn't possess before you started. So um, this is such a great book. Everyone should read it um, and everyone should share it. Make sure your library has it and thank your librarians for, for, for providing this book. Tony, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Leslie, for doing this, for all the incredibly kind words. And thanks to Jillian and thanks to everybody watching. Really, really appreciate the support. Most of all, just thanks for being readers and participating in book culture in the United States right now. 
Love you guys.